Scripture lesson for this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Listen now for God's word to you. This is Paul, and he says, What then are we to say? Should we continue to sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might be no longer enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Paul is always so much fun to read, isn't he? And listen to, and listen to. Yeah, all the people who took the Bible study are, when I say the, the, the Romans Bible study I did last spring, they're, they're all shouting by no means in their own head. Paul says that over and over again in Romans, by the way. Um, so back in the summer of 2012, after Heather and I got married, we took our honeymoon to Playa del Carmen, Mexico, uh, at an all-inclusive resort there. Uh, And along with enjoying all the things that an all-inclusive resort offers to you, the travel company that we went with also provided opportunities to go and take these excursions out to other parts of that part of Mexico. And so one of the trips we bought was to go and see the Mayan ruins of Chichen Itza. Um, So one morning, early in the morning, we piled into this coach bus with uh, other resort goers from not only our resort, but from the surrounding ones as well. And we drove a few hours inland to the Yucatan Peninsula to see the ruins of Chichen Itza. And of course, the, uh, the, the big attraction there is this giant pyramid that functions essentially as a giant calendar. And so remember, this is 2012, when all of that craze about the Mayan calendar is running out. So all this talk about the end of the world and everything else. And, and so it was fun to see the, the ruins of this calendar right before it runs out. And... Um, the world didn't end, obviously. We're still here all these years later. Uh, so we got to see the, the pyramid. We got to see the village uh, where, the, where people used to live. We got to see uh, the, the stadium where that Mayan game of Paca Talk used to be played. And you think our sports are high stakes now? Uh, that game is known for the fact that the captain of the losing team would be ceremonially sacrificed to the gods. Um, the, the Detroit Pistons would have no players left if that was still the rule, right? Um, or the, well, the Lions are okay this year. <laughs> Former Lions players might not have made it, right? Um, 
And then, so after we saw the ruins of this place, we got back on the bus and we uh, drove maybe 20 minutes away to what's known as a cenote. And a cenote is essentially like this giant cave with uh, this big pool of fresh water in it. And so we got there, we walked through this narrow passageway, we entered into this cave, which is open above us, and there is this big pool of fresh water. Um, but it's not like you can like kind of wade your way into this water. Um, it's just like a, a sheer rock face. There's no beach or anything like that. If you want, we're, we're there in this cenote so that we can swim around in the water. Uh, but that makes me a little bit nervous because it's 131 feet straight down. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm looking into the pool and there's like moms with their babies in life vests swimming around the water. So I'm like, okay, I, I'm not a baby. I can do this. Um, so Heather and I grabbed hands and we jumped in with both feet into this uh, cenote. And the water was so cold, it's one of those situations where it takes your breath away almost immediately. So we could only hang for a few minutes in this water, and we got out. And, um, but then Heather sees uh, that you can walk up this ledge, 15 or 16 feet high, and jump into the cenote. But it says, in plain English and in Spanish, it says, you jump at your own risk. There's no lifeguard on duty. Nobody's going to jump in to save you. And Heather is insistent. She wants to do this. I say, come on, Heather, we, we just got married. Like, we only got married a couple of days. I don't want to lose my wife already. And she's like, no, no, it's okay, I'll do it. So I watch her climb up this thing, and I'm just sitting there watching this. I'm like, I'm going to watch my wife die. It was fun while it lasted. Um, <laughs> but she does it. She jumps in with both feet, and then she swims back. And, um, and obviously, she's okay. We've had two kids since, and it's great. Um, it was, a, it was one of, as, as scary as it was in some ways, it was one of those what I call life tile moments. If you've ever played the board game of life, you get these little life tiles for experiences and they add up to your final score at the end of the game. And for me, this jumping into this cenote was uh, one of those life tile experiences. Uh, but as fun as it was, uh, I didn't know this at the time, but long before these cenotes were the swimming holes for vacationers and honeymooners, they were sacred places of life and death and rebirth for the Mayans. And so as we approach the remembrance of baptism today, we remind ourselves that when we stand at the baptismal font or the baptismal tub or the lake or the river, whatever tradition you were baptized in, we are standing at this place of life and death and rebirth. Now, of course, this is not the only meaning that baptism has. Our book of order says that baptism is a deep reservoir of meaning, that we could put all of the meanings of baptism on a dartboard, we could throw a dart, and we would hit something meaningful, something profound. But, and we could t say a lot of things about the meaning of baptism, but I know the lions play at 1 o'clock, so I'm not going to keep you here all day talking about all the meaningful things that come with baptism. Instead, we're going to follow Paul and what he says about baptism this morning that Paul says that baptism is this place of life and death, this place where we move from the cross to the resurrection, where we move from the old world and into the new. And we're picking up Paul mid-argument, which is not always an easy thing to do, especially in a book like Romans, which is known for being incredibly dense in its theology. We're picking up Paul mid-argument. He's been building this argument, this case with the Roman Christians along the way. Uh, that the Roman church is a, a church that Paul has never been to. So in a lot of ways, Romans is his introduction to this congregation, his way of explaining what it is that he believes to them. And so like so many of the congregations that Paul writes to, that Paul is associated with, those early churches, 
They are this strange mixture of both Jews and Gentiles, and that diversity creates tension, it creates conflict. That the, the, the Gentiles look at the Jews as if God has abandoned them, that God's done with them, and the Jews look at the Gentiles as if they are godless outsiders. And to this, Paul starts to develop this beautiful theology of grace. He says, what unites the two of you together is that God's grace covers each of you. To you Jews, you are housed and kept safe in God's grace apart from your fidelity to the law, the law of Moses. You can imagine the controversy that that generated when Paul said that then. You can imagine the controversy it generates now, but Paul is insistent upon this. God's grace is what saves you, not your fidelity to the law. And to the Gentiles, he says that God called you, God loved you, while you were groping around in the dark trying to find God. Grace is what unites you together. What Paul says is that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. I think that's one of the most beautiful lines anywhere in the Bible, certainly of anything that Paul said. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It's like one of my seminary professors used to say is that there's more grace in God than there is sin in us. That God's grace is always outpacing us, always ahead of us. As we enter into remembering our baptisms, it's one of the reasons why I love the baptisms of children so much is that it reminds all of us that God's grace was there ahead of us long before we could ever respond. There is more grace in God than there is sin in us. It's beautiful, beautiful theology. It's parts of Paul that I wish were emphasized more in the wider culture than some of the things he's become known for. But of course, Paul, there's a, Paul's anticipating an objection to his theology. Paul's anticipating the counter-argument to what he's saying. And so he does what so many of us do when we anticipate an argument, is we, we have these hypothetical arguments in our own heads, right? These often happen when we're laying in bed late at night or when we're in the shower, We have hypothetical arguments, and I like hypothetical arguments because I always win. (laughs) There's a a meme that I like online. It's a picture of a book, and it has the title on the cover. It says, Arguments I've Won in the Shower, Volume 1 of 16. (laughs) And so this is what Paul is doing. He's anticipating the arguments, and so he's standing there in the shower with the water running down his head, and he's imagining what the Roman Christians will say to him. They'll say to him, well, Paul, if God's grace covers us, then it doesn't matter what we do, right? Then we can continue to uh, live with harmful ideas about other people. We can continue to be complicit in, in structures and systems of injustice. We can live with callous indifference towards the suffering around us. Jews and Gentiles can continue to live with enmity towards each other because God's grace has got our back. God's grace will cover us. And so Paul is imagining this argument, he's getting really ticked off at what he's imagining someone else will say to him, and we get to listen in as he writes these words down. He says, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound even more? And that's when he says, by no means. People who took the Romans Bible study are used to that. That should be the subtitle to Romans. Romans, by no means. By no means. He says, don't you know what happened in your baptism? The great preacher Fred Craddock says that the powerful use of Paul's theology is that he's not introducing these concepts for the first time, but he is reminding the Roman Christians of what they already know. 
don't you know what happened in your baptism? We've been over this. You know what happens in your baptism. You are buried with Christ. You are in the tomb with him, and then you are raised to new life. You are resurrected. This is what Paul sees happening at baptism, that we move from death to life, from cross to resurrection, from the old age into the new one. Standing at the font is a place of death and rebirth. I remember hearing a story uh, one time about a, the Episcopal priest, uh, John Westerhoff, who uh, was visiting a service in a small Latin American church. And the, the church gathered together like we all have. They, they had the call to worship. They sat and listened to the sermon. And, and then in response to the sermon, there was a baptism. But what came, what the music that was playing was not the the happy baptismal hymns, the take me to the water, all of those ones. It was instead somber funeral music. And in, towards the back of the church, in walks a mother, or in walks a father with a, with a coffin that he has crafted out of wood, walking towards the front. And behind him is the mother carrying a, a, a pail of water taken from the, the family well. And then in walks the priest, carrying the child, not in a christening gown, but in a native blanket. And they make their way to the chancel of the church where the father places the coffin on the table. And then the mother pours the water into the coffin. And the priest anoints the child not with baptismal oil, but with embalming oil. And he takes the child and he fully immerses him into the waters in the coffin and says, I kill you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the whole congregation shouts out, Amen. And then lifting the child into the air, he says, and I resurrect you that you might love and serve the Lord. And with that, the somber funeral music ends and the joyous hymns of Easter are sung. Intense, isn't it? When's our next baptism so we can try that out? I'm only, uh, I'm only joking, but only kind of. I'm only sort of joking. Um, I can imagine that if Paul was sitting in that small Latin American church, that he would have had a huge smile on his face, that he probably would have been the loudest amen in that congregation, because this is what Paul is talking about when he's talking about baptism, this transition from death to life, from cross to resurrection, from the old age to the new. See, when we, we talk about resurrection, we have to understand that as, as Christianity develops out of first century Judaism, they carry with them this concept known as the general resurrection. So what they believed, or what many believed, not everybody believed this, was that at the culmination of the ages, at the end of all time, God would raise the righteous ones into new life and the new age would dawn in the world. This new age of God's love and justice and mercy and compassion and human dignity, that would be the new age that is ushered into the world. This is what they believed. But all of those followers of Jesus, as they're reflecting on his life and his death and his resurrection, they see what happened was not what anyone expected to happen, but it was not, it was not this whole group of people resurrected. It was this one person, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified and raised from the dead. And so what the early Christians saw in Jesus' resurrection was an apocalypse. And I don't mean in the sense of a disaster movie, as entertaining as those are, but in the sense of the turning of the ages, the movement from the old world into the new, that the old world of sin and death and injustice and pain and suffering, it dies with Christ. And when he 
walks out of the tomb, that new age of love and equity and human dignity and justice, that begins in him. And this is what Paul believes. In Christ, the new age has dawned, to which we all say, yeah, right, Paul. Have you looked around you lately? Forget big mega concepts like justice and equity. We can't even go to the grocery store without being mean to each other. How can you make this claim that the new age has dawned in the world when we can see evidence of the old age still everywhere all around us? And to that, Paul would say, well, it's here, but not quite yet. It's what is known in theological circles as the already, but the not yet. That makes no sense, right? The already, but the not yet. The new age is here, just not quite fully yet. It's a, it's a flower that grows in a field among the weeds. It's the, the sunrise in the morning letting us know that it's day, but it's not quite fully day just yet. Paul sees it being here in some capacity. And the only way he can make this claim is because there are people who participate in Christ's death and resurrection. This is where I think Paul is a genius. He says, we participate in his resurrection as we pass through the waters of baptism. For everybody who passes through the waters of baptism, we pass from the old age into the new. We pass from that old world of sin and death and pain and injustice into that new world of love and equity and wholeness and human dignity. That we are now living in resurrection time. And so this is why Paul thunders out, can we continue to go on as we always have? Can we continue to live with complicity with systems of of injustice? Can we continue to live with callous indifference towards the suffering of others? Can we live with harmful ideas about ourselves or other people? Can Jews and Gentiles live with enmity towards each other? By no means, Paul thunders out. By no means can we continue to live in the ways that we always have because we have crossed from death to life, from cross to resurrection, from the old world and into the new. We keep on going. That we, who have passed through the waters of baptism, that we are the tangible, open and shut, forensic evidence of what has happened in Christ. That we are the the flower growing among the weeds. We are the sunrise cresting the horizon on a new day. That for those of us who have gone through the waters of baptism, we are living as if the new age has already arrived. That we seek justice in the world because we have passed through the waters of baptism. We, we let go of those harmful ideas about ourselves and other people because we have passed through the waters of baptism. That we live with frivolous generosity and love, wasteful love, because we know that in every hand that reaches down to the lowly, in every Christmas Eve offering that's given, in every mouth that is fed, in every back that is clothed, it is a sign and a symbol of that new age that has dawned in Christ. Don't you know what's happened in your baptism, Paul says? You have moved from the old world and into the new. And you are the tangible signs of that new age. The proof, the only proof that Paul or anyone else has that what has been done in Christ has been accomplished. Thanks be to God. Amen.